And we can definitely talk about training and the parallels between training for something highly specialized like that at NASA versus I would, the Army. Any day, this has come full circle. I've, you know, I've been on the astronaut selection board and I've seen the sausage get made and you're sorting through candidates that are the best people you can find in the country. And it doesn't come down to like who's got more degrees or whatever. I mean, it's going to come down to are they a good fit? And that doesn't mean that they're necessarily the highest performer. A lot of top performers come out of the willingness to do hard things, to be challenged. And I like to be challenged. And I like to be surrounded by people who like to be challenged. This episode is with Drew Morgan. Drew Morgan is an Army colonel, physician, and astronaut, and is the proud leader of Team Kwajalein, called Team Quaj. He is currently the commander of U.S. Army Garrison at Kwajalein Atoll in the Republic of the Marshall Islands. A few weeks back, Drew and I had the opportunity to record this conversation at my house here in Hawaii during one of his layovers. Since our recording, a huge road wave has crashed into the northern area of the islands, causing extensive damage and will take months to recover from. For context, that portion of the island is tiny, with a total area less than 2.5 square miles, and the affected area has a max elevation of about 13 feet above sea level. What is most impressive is how Team Quaj has responded as a team, which to no surprise when you hear from Drew as he brought his years of experience in building teams to Quadling. I hope you enjoy this conversation. First and foremost, I'm a soldier, physician, and an astronaut. And I decided before I went into space and I kind of wanted like, what's the theme that I want to carry with me that I want people to remember about my mission, me, because that's the biggest impact I'm ever going to have for the military or for NASA is those nine months that I spend in space. So soldier, physician, astronaut, and they're in that order for a specific reason because those are the those that's the order that I became those things. That's the it's a relative order of of a, a importance to me as well in terms of of I decided first to be a soldier. That's I never decided years ago that I wanted to be an astronaut and I'm going to plot one foot in front of the other to get me there. It was deliberate choice that I made was to serve in the military. And it wasn't always necessary to be in the army, but it was to serve in the military. That was first and foremost from the beginning. That's all I ever wanted to do. And it's something that I knew that I, I could do. Astronauts seems very ethereal, very idealistic, pie in the sky. I'm very pragmatic, realistic, uh, maybe a little bit underconfident. And so I, when I assimilated that, it was like, why would I plot a course to becoming an astronaut only for that to not necessarily pan out that way. And then I've followed a path that not, didn't necessarily lead to where I wanted to be. What motivated me was service, service in the military, selfless service. That's what drives me. The idea of what's the, you know, what's the greater good and being told what to do. Here's a, here's a couple of, here's a couple choices out, but we think this is the best fit for you and keep plotting towards that. I love that. Yeah, was there were there people? Was there people in your lives? Whether it be a grandfather, your mom, or your dad, was was it people, or was it circumstances like situations? Was it high school? Was it a coach? What what was it that kind of? Yeah, I mean, my you know. story is very similar to many that are serving in the military. Is that it was something that you inherited from your family? I grew up in a military household. My father was a career Air Force officer. 
he was a dentist. So he was a healthcare provider in the, in the Air Force. And so I grew up in that move in every couple of years. And that was part of my life. And I admired my dad and the way that he kind of balanced officership as well as being, you know, a, a healthcare provider and a, you know, a technician in a technical field. Uh, and I, I thought that was really cool. But I also had two sets of grandparents, you know, my, my, on my mom's side and my dad's side that had served in the military as well. My, my father's father was a officer in the Marine Corps and, and flew at the time of World War II and went through flight training just as the war was ending. And so I grew up around around that influence as well as my, um, mother's father who had served in the Pacific theater in World War II. And been being inspired by that. And my father also had a great uncle who was in the Airborne in the 101st and jumped at Normandy and at Market Garden. And I remember hearing the lore of that growing up, too, the idea Airborne. I was like, what is that? Paratrooper jumping out of an airplane. That always sounded kind of cool to me, too. But when I was really starting to think about military service... Yeah, of course, my dad was in the Air Force. My grandfather was one grandfather in the in the Marine Corps. One grandfather had been in the Army. I uh, my initial thoughts, of course, gravitated towards the Air Force and flying. As I went through high school and I looked at all the different service academies, I fell in love with a service academy first, not necessarily a service. Got West it, Point really it. captivated yeah. me. Yeah, yeah. That was uh, I'm. I'm a history buff, and I, I love history. And the first time I visited West Point when I was uh, just finishing my sophomore year, I just fell in love with the West Point as the, the garrison and that Gothic architecture and the idea of what that place represented. Once I had stepped foot there, I knew that's where I wanted to go. And if that meant I was going to be in the Army, okay. You know, that's, what, that's what captivated me initially. Mm-hmm. Was there something about um, the culture or was it just a feeling that you got when you walked through the campus? You know, sometimes the culture breeds. Sometimes it, it the culture, what an organization, it's the feeling you get when you walk the grounds. It's the feeling people get when they walk into an NFL stadium. Yeah. It's the feeling that people get when they walk on the beach, right? Was there What was it about that feeling that you had when you, were, when you walked on there that said, this is, this is what's calling me this way? I had eventually set foot on all the service academies in those in my high school years, but there was something about the fact that that crest said 1802, duty on her country, hallowed ground, General MacArthur, sta- sta- you know, that statue there staring out at the plane. Those types of things really resonated with me. The idea of what this place represented all the way back, you know, in contrast, nothing to detract against the Air Force, the Air Force Academy, but it's relative newness and that, that architecture didn't resonate with me the same way. And the, uh, and the other factor, as I mentioned, I'm interested in aviation and flying. And I was also like, I'm a common calculated risk taker, a, a hedge in my bets, you know, yeah. I am. I was marginal eyesight. I knew I was going to be on the edge. And I, if I was going to be in the Air Force and the Navy, I knew I wanted to fly. I wanted to fly something fast and cool. Top Gun generation, of course. Yeah, that's like Ryan. You just got done yeah. talking to Ryan yeah. about the Naval Academy and the Air Force Academy 1 and 2 with the Army, with the Military Academy being number 3. Why? Because she said she wanted to fly. Yeah. And, then, and, and when you said the newness, right? Think of that. That's our kids right now saying, what about Space Force? So I, when I looked at West Point, I was like, well, I could go there and I could be an Apache pilot, 
But if I say my vision doesn't hold up, I could be an infantry officer. I could be an armor officer. I could be all these other things. And it seemed like I couldn't, I could do no wrong. I, one way or the other, I was going to end up doing something so and choices. it felt noble. It all felt duty, honor, country. It all felt like purposeful and, and service oriented in the way that I, I, I was like, there's a centuries of heritage behind this. I want it. I want that. I want to do that. Now I never lost my interest in aviation, which, you know, fast forward a couple decades later, that's why I, you know, I found myself pursuing becoming an astronaut. So mm-hmm. I, always have somehow managed to touch a little bit of everything along the way. <laughs> to me, the Army represented that, the ability to do just about anything. You like boats? You can do that in the Army. You like diving? You can do that in the Army. You want to fly? You can do that in the Army. You, But you want to be uh, a cook, an artist, a public affairs officer. Oh, you can do all those things in the Army. Yes. And if you don't like what you're doing for a while, you can, they're pretty forgiving and redirect, allowing you to redirect. And Mike's yeah. career is a perfect example of that direction. Yeah. And you said, you used the word forgiving, but there, but it's also flexible. There are a lot of folks refer, think the army is so rigid and that we're so, everything has to be done a certain way. And we're both living examples of nothing about our career has been rigid and it's all been flexible, right? And that's because leaders are out there figuring out what's best for you, what's best for your family, what's best for this unit, what's best for the organization, what's best for the long term of the Army, right, with other people. Flexible. The Army is getting better about being flexible. I mean, I think that's what one of the positive outcomes or one of the things that's driving the concept of the Army talent management, that concept of being able to put the right person in the right place at the right time. That is not, it's not, while it's not a novel concept outside of the military, it's a novel concept in the military and the army, I believe is really leading that effort because in the astronaut corps, I've been in parallel with officers of my same rank grade and, um, and, and aptitude in their careers in other services. And the army is the most flexible and adaptable. And the very fact that I right now, have stepped away from the astronaut corps to be a commander at the 06 level. That just doesn't happen in the other services. The mm-hmm. army has been able to adapt the system to look at the unique career path that I've had and see if there's a place that I could fit. <laughs> that is a, a testament to the army's thinking about talent management that is cutting edge and it gives in an advantage in the, the relative service level competition that of course always exists. That's, that's the place that the army is excelling right now. Mm-hmm. And it's that talent management concept and all the things that have come with it, the commander's assessment program and all those things, all hugely uh, impactful innovations in the army. And, and the people that are going through it, the people that have had these flexible careers, the people that have had mentors that have figured out what's the best way to do this, what's what's best for the organization, what's best for this person, what's best for their family. Those are the leaders that are getting put in charge now, right? And so people have a tendency to lead the way that they were led or they didn't like the examples that they had led. So they said, when I get put in charge, I'm going to do things different. Right. And so I think we're getting better every year. Every year, the people that get put in charge, the battalion commanders, they're better than they were 20 years ago. The brigade commanders that are coming, they're more prepared. They're more flexible. They have, they understand people. Right. I, I think that's one of the biggest pitches that I give when I'm, I mentor officers at, especially at the field grade level where they're sort of at that decision point where, you know, what to do, do next. And I love, finding that next step for them 
that maybe they hadn't thought about. And maybe they were put off by the fact that that's just impossible. How would I figure that out? Mm -hmm. I'm like, I love the challenge of trying to figure that out for them. How to navigate that. Let's, that does, that sounds, that's pretty atypical for you to go from A to Z, but let's ask the question and let's, let's fire up the Rolodex and ask the right people because there's somebody somewhere that has the decision authority to make that happen. And that is the, I think it's the best recruitment and retention tool, not the best, but probably one of the top two or three that we have going right now is that, that we have that ability to, to do that. And it takes, Leaders that that want to understand those systems and being willing to navigate the the red tape that might come with that, but I mean that's that is what uh, that's one of the things that I I have valued that I've been able to, by stepping back into the army. I'm using air yep. quotes right now. Yeah. Back into the army, even though I've never left the army, I'm back in the army uh, because ten years at NASA has allowed me to see other ways of doing things and. Um, appreciate what the army does well, appreciate what some of the things that, you know, I've been able to export from NASA. Like, Hey, these are that maybe we can think about this or helping people navigate that to help them become the best version of themselves. Yeah, no doubt. For the army. Yeah, no doubt. Were there things, again, we're reflecting because of all the experience that we've had and the, and the opportunities that we've been given, the deployments, the people, the the access to mentors, amazing things, right? My son said this to me, and this is probably the fifth time I've said this to a different person, but I'm going to say it again, is he said, Dad, it's great. You're giving us advice from somebody who's been doing it for 30 years and somebody who's got a wall of books with all this experience. But what were you doing when you were my age? What were the challenges that you were going through when you were 24? And how did you make those decisions? And what, you know, what? What was the, what were you using? What were the systems that you were using then that got you to, to this place? Right. So what were some of those experiences that you had early in the military, early in the army where somebody, somebody provided you that flexibility, that special opportunity that somebody said, Hey, I know what the, the typical army system says, but we're going to point you in this direction. Right. And I, and that has a little bit to do with wanting to be part of those mission critical teams, those high functional teams, those high function. I want to be a part of a high functioning organizations. Yeah. Was it people? Was it, what was it that kind of pushed you in those directions? Yeah, no, I, this is something that I thought a lot because you and I have the shared experience of we both have, um, sons who are in the army. Now you have, you know, mm-hmm. your son, um, who's serving as a soldier right now. My son, who's in his second year as a cadet at West Point and, and I'm having, I have those same conversations where I'm, I reflect back and I, you know, I'm still dad to them. And a lot of what I have to say, just, it bounces off of them. The difference between when I was at my son's stage and where he is now is that I didn't have anybody, you know, my, my father being an air force officer didn't necessarily have a, a ton of insight into the decisions I was making as a cadet and advancing along, along that path. And I, I felt like I had a, a relative paucity of mentors at those early stages. Whereas I've, I've unfortunately or fortunately created an environment for my son where he's got more information probably than he can digest. Um, more and, than he probably wants. Yeah. Oh no, I, I, I think that is, that's for sure. That's for sure. You know, when I, I look back and I think I was making a lot of these decisions like, you know, Forrest Gump and just kind of fl- floating along 
just doing what um, doing what seemed right, felt right at the time. Um, you know that you're heavily influenced by by your peers and you know cadet rumors or soldier rumors and barracks lawyering and things, the speculation. Because I hear those things from, I'm sure you hear it from your son as well. And you and you hear what they they say, and it sounds like the same things that I heard when I was a cadet, and I was you know what was speculation about this or that or you know just mm-hmm. misconceptions that I, I want to correct, but I realize, I recognize that that is still very heavily influential. I still don't know that I'll ever weigh more than, than, than a peer. But I do remember when I was a, a cadet, I had, a, I had surgery on my knee uh, my senior year, I had torn meniscus, and uh, the general surgeon, the orthopedic surgeon at West Point that operated on my knee, his name was uh, John Yohorchak, and he was a he was a West Point graduate, but before and then had been an armor officer, and then gone on to medical school, became a an orthopedic surgeon. And after I had surgery, I he had a guest lecture to talk about his experiences in Somalia, and I w- went with great interest because I was at this point I had you know felt like I was on the path to potentially go to medical school, and I wanted to hear what he had to say. And he didn't ever uh, divulge exactly what organization it was that he was part of, but. What he was describing of fast roping, he was an orthopedic surgeon, board certified orthopedic surgeon, fast roping and taking care of rangers and, and Mogadishu and um, all this high speed training he was doing. I, I was like, I don't know what organization that guy's in, but that's what I want to do. Yeah. And, you know, sure enough, as my career progressed and I went on to medical school, finished my residency, I found out what this organization was uh, and was recruited to it and served in it. And then years later, and he had Dr. Uhorchek, Colonel Uhorchek had long retired. I saw him at a reunion one year and I told him that story and it brought him to tears to know that he had had that influence on me. Yeah. That's the kind of impact that I hope that I've had on a couple of young officers and soldiers over the years that you just don't know what seed you planted in somebody's head. Like I never would have known that that such a capability existed and didn't know for several years afterwards what that was. But I was like, that's, I want to do that. Here's another story though. When I was in third grade in Texas, we were celebrating the 150th anniversary of Texas and we were supposed to write, uh, write to Texas, famous Texans. And, um, and I was, was interested in space and, and that kind of thing at that time. And I, one of the people on the list you could write to was Alan Beam, the fourth American to walk on the moon. He was an Apollo astronaut. And I wrote him a letter as part of that. And, and he, I got a standardized letter and something signed from Alan Bean back from NASA. I remember getting the envelope to turn address said Johnson Space Center. And I was like, as a fourth grade kid, I thought that I had just been selected by NASA. I was like, oh my gosh, they've pre-selected me. <laughs> Got this letter. I was so excited. And I had to give it up to the school because it was for this school celebration of the 150th anniversary of, uh, 150th anniversary of Texas statehood. Years later, I mean, this was just, uh, I would say five or six years ago at an astronaut reunion. We had a, have a reunion every other year. I met Alan Bean and I told him that story. And he, again, was just moved to, to think that he had written to me. And I'm, I'm guessing I had, I'm guessing this probably been about 1980. Well, it would have been 1985, 86 that I wrote that, that letter. Um, and he had his time as an active astronaut had, he had, he had left the, the astronaut program, but I was able to thank him for that. And he invited my wife and I to his house. He lived in Houston. And, um, and he has subsequently passed, but I was able to um, be there 
with his family at his uh, at his remembrance at Johnson Space Center and ta- tell them this story about how I had written, ta- telling them how I wanted to be an astronaut one day, and then almost 35, 40 years later, I was able to tell them in person. Yeah, You never know what impact that you have, that you've left something with someone that they're going to carry with them. All of my astronaut colleagues, classmates that I was selected with in 2013 – have a similar story like that of yeah. some pinnacle moment where somebody said a thing that put something on their radar that caused them to follow a path. My, my, one of my best friends in the astronaut corps, um, Victor Glover, he's a, a captain in the U S Navy. He's a F 18 test pilot. And he talks about how a teacher one, you know, had said to him, Hey, you'd make a great engineer one day. And he thought engineer, what is that? Somebody who drives a train. And then he looked into it more and he found out, Oh, okay. There's this thing that applies math and science and does this thing like would never have thought about it except that this teacher had planted the seed and said, Hey, you really ought to look into this. You'd make a great engineer. You got a great mind for an engineer. And now he's assigned to be the pilot of Artemis two, which will be the first spacecraft to fly around the moon since 1972. That's the impact that that teacher had. You never yeah. know what seed you're going to plant with someone. And what, what I think folks, if, if people are ever looking for, like, how do you give back? How do you say thank you? Like, think about how good that makes you feel if someone tells, tells you something like that or the way that you shared that with somebody and it brought a tear to his eye, right? If you just shoot somebody a message, no matter how high ranking they might be or they're retired and you think they don't care anymore, they care, right? Oh, yeah. And, and if you reached out to somebody and you said, hey, you know, about 15 years ago, 10 years ago, two years ago, whatever it might be, you said something to me that made a huge impact on my life and let them know. Yeah. Like just let them know. When I was a sergeant, uh, I was acting as a squad leader one day and I was a young ranger. Uh, so I was a team leader, but I was acting as a squad leader. And so my guys, one day we get up in the patrol base, you know, and it's like, it's time to camo up, right? The sun's coming up. It's time to camo up. It's time to get ready for the day. And I looked around at all my guys and like, their camo was half ass, right? At best, maybe a pie face or something like that. <laughs> and so I started digging into them a little bit and I started going, you know, let's go guys. Like get, get up, get the camo right. And I started doing this. I started digging into them, probably Ranger team leader way, you know, a little bit harder than what I'm, what I'm suggesting right now. Right. And they started looking at me with this weird look and they started like looking over my shoulder, looking over my shoulder, looking over my shoulder. And I was like, what are you guys looking at? And they go like this, turn around. And I turn around and it's Stan McChrystal. He was regimental commander at the time. And what is Stan McChrystal standing there doing? And he's camoing up. He's got his camo stick in his hand and he's feverishly like camoing up. And I go, hey, sir, oh, sir. And he goes, I'm camoing up. That, he's like, he's like <laughs> that's right. yeah, he goes, because that's, I heard what you were saying to those guys and that's the standard. And, and the sun comes up, the camo's got to be perfect. And he was camoing up right there. He was regimental commander. I was a sergeant, right? And I never forgot that story. And fast forward, we were at a change of command for Rob McChrystal's change of command at, at Fort Bragg. And I told him about that story. And I've t- I think I've told him that story about three or four times. But every time I tell him, you'd see the, the look on his face is like the impact that that little moment had on me, right? Which was, that's what sergeants do. He said, that's what sergeants do. They take charge no matter what rank. They let people know what's going on, like yeah. how, how it needs to be. Yeah. Um, and it had a huge impact on me. Was there ever a point where you started thinking, maybe I don't want to do the army forever? 
Like at this, you know, you're probably a major, you, you've been through medical school. Like, was there ever a point where you started considering like, do I do something else with my life? I mean, I, maybe it'll sound disingenuous, but no, <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I've like, I've, I've enjoyed my career path in the army so much that after 10 years at NASA that I've you know made the conscious decision to step back into it and, and feel it. Now I'm, I'm six months into it out there in Kwajalein Atoll. And it's not, you know, it's not the same as being uh, at Fort Liberty or, or even here at Schofield Barracks or something where you're, you're in a division. It's not the same, but it's still, it's much more like being in the army than it was at NASA. And I love it. I love being back. And so I'm right now looking like, I don't, I don't know what the end point is, but I don't want to think about that end point yeah. right now. And I never felt discouraged or, or dissuaded along the way to the point that I, I gave it much serious thought. It's hard for me to imagine. I know that then we'll come and, and we can talk about transitions yeah, yeah, too. Sure. We should, but that I, right now I'm not ready to yeah, sort yeah. Of cross that bridge. And, and so when, you know, it's, it's been a, it's been a couple of days since you were a major or since you were a captain, you know, and you had to decide, you know, do I want to stick, do I want to stick with the army? But again, some of our folks are, our lieutenants, our captains, our sergeants, staff sergeants, like they're considering whether or not they want to make this a career and and whether or not they want to keep doing this. And that's, and we've, we've heard from a lot of them. A lot of them are saying things like the most important thing is that my family stays together. If they're two married couple, a married couple, and they're both serving in the military, number one, they have to be together. Yeah. Number two, how are we going to start a family? Because they don't want to wait till the military is over. They don't want to. They, they don't want to wait to start a family. So whether it's the husband or the wife, and who's going to decide? Like when are we going to have a baby? And whose career is it going to affect? Those are some of the things that are going through their mind uh, right now for some of the younger folks. Uh, and those are the ones that we're coaching. Those are the ones yeah. that we're mentoring. They're coming to people like us, and they're saying, you know, what, what do you think? But it's hard for them to come to their actual leader, right? Because nobody wants to bring up to their actual battalion commander and say, I'm considering getting out of the army, right? No one wants to tell their brigade commander, I'm thinking about getting out of the army. So they come to people like us who are not in their direct chain of command and say, hey, I'm thinking about it. Yeah. Neighbor of yours and good friend of mine, um, a couple months ago, Rob Shaw and I were having a conversation and he said something that he probably doesn't even realize that re- resonated with me. But the, the more, se- this is, so the, the concept is that the more senior you become and the more you advance in the army and certainly the more uh, value you, you add to the army, the more they're going to ask of you to, to do harder and harder things, make more and more sacrifices, be willing to, you know, like in a practical sense, move more often at inconvenient times to more uh, undesirable locations. So uh, something that Rob said is we're at the point in our careers where we have to, where you have to decide what it is that you're not willing to do and draw those lines. And you do have to recognize that there are, there are places that, that those are thresholds that, that you, you as a family have to decide that you you are, or you aren't going to do whatever that might be. Your red lines. Yeah. You know, what, what are our red lines as a family? What are our red lines as a per- as my values as a person, right? And I'm reading a phenomenal book right here. It's right, right right over my shoulder. It's called Right Fit Wrong Fit, and it's about what am I the right fit for and what am I the wrong fit for? Because if they, if they put you somewhere in a certain with certain responsibilities and you are not the right fit, you're not going to enjoy it, and you're probably not going to do your best job. But if you find something where you are the right fit where your values, the things that you're good at, the skills, the things that you wake up in the morning and you love doing, if we can make those things match, 
we're going in the right direction. When you can make those two match, people get inspired, people get fired up, people, they, they come in early, they go home late, they can't wait to do what it is they're doing, or they, they are comfortable leaving for the day because they know they just crushed it. They right. know they did everything that their leader asked them to do, their manager asked them to do because they're the right fit. So like the next, the next area is like, what's driving you like right now? Like what's, what's got you fired up right now? What's got you waking up in the morning and quadrilling? Like what do they got you doing right now that, that, that excites you uh, down there? Yeah. So just as a, a, a little bit of context, I became a physician that then was in emergency medicine, my, my specialty and, and operating in special operations. Very technical, ta- tactical to some degree, but technical from a medical perspective, uh, ap- applied um, at battalion level, and then eventually a brigade level. Then I was selected as an astronaut, and then I was taken back down a, a rung because as an astronaut, you are your operator level, you know, mm-hmm. m- member of squad. You go back to the basics again to learn spacewalking, to learn systems of the space station. To learn a foreign language, you gotta, you know, learn Russian, learn, um, how to fly an aircraft, be an air crew, a crew member. I mean, you're, you're back to learning a technical thing and that's your job. It's like, you know, in the army aviation sense, it's like being a, a warrant officer. You're a perpetual technician, mm-hmm. ranger member of squad or team level. Mm-hmm. You know, at, that, that is your job to be tactically proficient and technically proficient. Period. That's it. You're not in charge of anything other than yourself. And that is, you know, that's, that's where we all want to be, where we want to start out. But yeah. after spending a, a better part of a decade and going through the, the, the cycle of the life cycle of an astronaut, which is measured in years, you know, two years of initial training, then usually a couple of years as a, as a, you know, doing staff like functions, then assigned to a flight, a specific space mission where you're then training again for upwards of a year and a half to two years and then flying a mission where mine was like nine months long and then recovering from that for another six to 12 months after that. That's a long cycle to go through one time. Mm -hmm. That's like, you know, and when you say, when you say you had the training for that mission, there was a specific mission for those nine, those nine months. And I think listening to another podcast that you did with some folks, you had to repair something on the, on the space station. Right. And so you had to like, you had to train up on how you were going to repair make those repairs, how you were going to do that training for a specific mission meant that I was training for a specific time period on board the International Space Station. For me, that was Expedition 60, 61, and 62, a nine-month period on the on the ISS. And the ISS program, NASA, um, and its international partners know what science they're going to execute. They know what maintenance they're going to execute and what spacewalks they're going to execute during that time period. So they're equipping you with the specific knowledge for that. When you go through initial astronaut candidate training, for those two uh, the initial two years, right after you're selected, that's to learn very generic skills about spacewalking, to learn the Russian language, to learn how to be an air crew, be, how to be a crew member, how to learn how to respond to an emergency on the space station. All the you know, it's mm-hmm. very generic. Mm-hmm. But then when you do specific training for a mission, you're learning this is the actual science experiment you're going to execute. This is the actual um, avionics rack that you're going to change out. And then in my case. There was there was an actual component outside the space station that was going to require a lot of very specialized rehearsal to train for that me and my crewmate Luca Parmitano trained for several months specifically on that how to do this this series of spacewalks. It was a, it, this was a four series 
uh, a series of four spacewalks. So that's an example of, and we can definitely talk yeah. about training and the parallels between training for something highly specialized like that at NASA versus the Army. There's mm -hmm. a lot of a lot of very interesting parallels. In fact, I went back to the Ranger Regiment to talk about that with um, 375 about the planning an airborne operation and planning spacewalks, the parallels, fascinating parallels and having done airborne operations in the, in the army, um, great preparation for doing something like that. But uh, my point, original point was that, that I spent a decade uh, in my Lieutenant Colonel and early Colonel years doing, being, doing a very technical task, very focused on mm -hmm. just, just me uh, and in, in army parlance being technically and tactically proficient, not developing as a leader. And there was, you know, going back to uh, original principles, why did I come into the army? Well, it was to be, be a leader, to, to serve as a leader and, and progress in that. And as an army officer, you're raised to have progressively more and more responsibility and more and more autonomy and take more and more initiative and do all all those things but that's not necessarily the 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 path that you follow as an astronaut because there are opportunities to lead and and to influence but that's not your primary purpose there your primary purpose is to train to fly in space to be a good crew member for whatever you're called to do mm -hmm. so when i returned from my nine months in space I definitely felt this yearning inside to to step back into the the military or, or to pick up kind of where I had left off and uh, as a leader and develop that and grow more in that aspect. Yeah. I also was looking for something that was a little bit of more of an adventure for my entire family rather than just for me. Sure, I mean, sure, certainly sure. following my mission into space was an adventure for my whole family, but. Not the same way as living overseas in Kwajalein has been for my family. Uh, yeah. And so when, uh, again, this is another tip of the hat to some great mentors in Army Space and Missile Defense Command, General Dickinson and General Carbler, both had seen my interest and had encouraged me to think about that, to think about ways to, to get back, to come back into the Army in an influential way. And Kwajalein had become an Army Space Operations-specific command 06 level and they thought you know Kwajalein is like it's one of those it's it's a it's an unusual thing it doesn't fit in any one one mold it's hard to be well prepared for that so I think they they figured you're uh, uh here's a place with an un unusual set of circumstances here's an officer with an unusual set of skills and background maybe they it would be a good match and I'll tell you after the now seven months there, it, it really was a good match because yeah. there are so many facets of the place that are very similar to the idea of being alone on the space station and thinking about your resources in a constrained environment sure. and resupply being um, always very tenuous, um, power generation and your clean water and, um, you know, weather events. And um, also just living in small, tight qu quarters like you do on the space station. Same thing on Kwajalein. You, you live and work and are neighbors with and go and shop with the same people all the time. And that, that idea of being a good crewmate and teammate, I preach it all the time on the island, um, that the importance of being a good person, being a good neighbor, good teammate, those types of things, those are valued greatly as astronauts. Because you can imagine when you live and work in space, 
where you are less than a couple arms reach, arm lengths away from your crewmates for the entire time. You never escape each other. So you see each other at your highs and your lows. There's no getting around it. You're going to have bad days. They're going to have bad days. You're going to have great days. Um, and maybe those aren't all going to, going to align. You can't hide who you are. Well, that's very true on, on small island. You know, for, for reference, Kwajalein is three miles by a half mile. It's very small. And a third of that is taken up by airfield. So we live the kind of the, the living cantonment area on Kwajalein is, it's about a half mile by a half mile. Most to a person, astronauts come back and debrief. The technical is, is important, you, 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 but you have this expected baseline level of performance from your crewmates that they've been trained to a technical proficiency that in an emergency, they know what to do. You know, if they're your partner in spacewalking, that they're going to do the, you know, that they know how to do the right thing. You can assume that we're all trained to a certain proficiency level. Really what comes down to is like, are you a good person that I want to live in a small enclosed can with for months on end yes. are you you know what are your moods like and what are your are you a considerate person are you uh you know like are you uh are you you know are you a food hoarder you know or a chow thief like in ranger school like yeah. you know, like you know, those, all those types of things come into play and so and those types of things are what really become the shades of difference between yeah. a good experience and a bad experience and a good crewmate and a bad crewmate and those are things that i've taken with me to command in a small remote place kind of like living on yeah. the space station we got to be good people with each other. Yeah. And you've had a lot of time to reflect on that experience, but your military experience, right? About being a teammate to take that all the way back to, to folks that maybe just started that just started in the army or just started on a team. Right. And they, and they, they're so worried about their skills. They're so worried about their performance their that at bat, that football game, that first training exercise, how they're doing. Right. And what do most often overlook is the thing that you just said was the most important. How good of a teammate are you? As you become more senior, you know, evaluations start becoming less important. Relationships become more important, right? Your reputation becomes way more important than paperwork as you get older, right? When you become a senior executive outside, it's your reputation. It's not always the bottom line. It's not always about the numbers. Right. But when you're young, it's hard to see through those things. Right. Because those are the only things you have when you're young to look at. You only have a couple metrics. Right. And so I just want to, I wanted to harp again on the, the teamwork part about growing up on a team. When you were the surgeon and you showed up to your first special mission unit and you were a part of the team, you couldn't let the team down. Like you had to be a good dude. You had to be the kind of person that I wanted to be around for months on end, right? When we go on these deployments, when you go on these training exercises, the most important thing wasn't how good were your skills. It was, do I want to hang out with you for hours upon hours and upon hours? I would any day, because I've also been able to, this has come full circle. I've, you know, I've been on the astronaut selection board and I've seen the, the sausage get made and you're sorting through candidates that are the best people you could find in the country. And it doesn't come down to like, who's got more degrees or whatever. I mean, you get to a point where you're just, you're sifting through really good people and it's going to come down to, are they a good fit? Are, you know, are they um, the, the right personality? And that doesn't mean that they're necessarily the highest performer. If, if I was, if I had a, a job that I was hiring for to be on my staff right now, I'll take the average performer, good, good dude any day over the high performer that nobody gets along with. I mean, I mean, you, you hear that all day, every day. That is just like, that is just rote in the soft world for sure. 
Yeah, no doubt. Like we want to be around people that care about us. We want about we want to be around somebody that that knows that I got a wife and kids, that knows my wife's name, that knows what what my my girls are up to and my sons are doing, right? Like we want we want to be around those kind of people because most of the time we're not actually out executing the mission. Most of the time we're around, we're exercising, we're doing PT, we're talking about life, right? We're we're guiding our life. We're asking questions about life. We're trying to raise our kids, our family. We're trying to decide what's best for, you know, our career, our personal life. There's such a fraction of the time that's actually spent doing either the mission or doing the uh, the technical stuff. Uh, something Something you said... And I pulled up one of the old TED talks that you did, and and you said like how to how to fulfill like the dream, the dream. I'm sure I'm not sure if you remember. Yeah, how, uh, yeah, how you I, fulfill the dream career? Hey, and that, it was well, about six you, minutes. Yeah, yeah. That's what that that TED talk I did for. Uh, it was a TEDx talk. Yeah, it was a TEDx. And it was like, the the original question was how do I become an astronaut? Because that's the, one of the most yeah. common things that an astronaut is asked. That. And how do you go to the bathroom in space? I mean, those two things. They live in that world. And uh, and there's no easy way to answer that because there's a lot of things that are beyond your control. So my advice is best, you know, how do you have a successful career? Like in the context of like, how, how do you be a good officer? How do you have a successful career in the Army? How do you have, have a fulfilling career? Because the formula is effectively the same thing. First is that you've got to do what you love. So to my original um, I said my career path, I didn't like put one foot in front of the other, how to become an astronaut. Because if I did, I would have picked, I would have majored in something different. I would have picked a different branch of service. I would have picked a different career field. If you want to just look at the, st- the stats and the probabilities and, and what, the, no, I picked what I loved doing, what I felt passionate about, which was serving in the army as a soldier and then eventually medicine and studying medicine and going, you know, that was, that was what I was passionate about. That wasn't like what, I thought would make me an astronaut. That's what I was passionate about. Then the second piece is being really good at, excelling at what you do. Being what are the markers of 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 doing well at that thing? Well, you know, for a young doctor, that is, you know, it's getting board certified. And then, and then I was like, then volunteering for the toughest and the hardest things. So I wanted to do special operations and be hard, part of the best teams. What's the what's the best of the best to be around where I can I can support the the most elite and be surrounded by the most elite, the people that I know are the best in their field. What are those markers of distinction and go achieve those things. So, you know, and that, that led to doing a lot of atypical things as a physician, you know, jumping out of airplanes, diving, going to ranger school, all those, those, those types of things. Cause those are the things that were markers of distinction and made me better in what it was I was doing. Mm. And then the last thing, which we've already touched on, but it's worth saying twice is the idea of being a good teammate, being a good peer. And, you know, thank God the Army has incorporated that type of thinking into talent management and the commander's assessment program because that doesn't mean just projecting well up, but also projecting well down and laterally too. So what do your peers think of you? What do your subordinates think of you? And what do your leaders really think of you? Not just what they write in your OER. Like what, what is, the, is the 360 degree view of you the same? Or is it different depending on the perspective that, people are looking at you from that's what being a good teammate are and those three things it's not going to make you an astronaut but it's going to give you a fulfilling career if you follow that formula and that might also lead to being an astronaut if that's what you want to pursue but your end state should be i want to be fulfilled in my career and what i do and what i give back and how i serve yeah i want to pull this thread on something that that i often get because i've been a ranger my whole life right 
people always ask about ranger school, right? What am I going to get out of ranger school? What am I going to learn about ranger school? Uh, I'm in a, uh, I'm a different MOS. Ranger school is not required. You're a physician, right? But yet you still went to ranger school. You still went to scuba school, right? You went to free fall. Um, and, and now you're talking about going to jungle school with your son. Talk to me about your thoughts on when people say, you don't need to go to ranger school. Don't worry about it. That doesn't fall into your realm. You don't need to be good at something like that. You don't need to go sit in the, in the jungle uh, and go to jungle school because that does, you're, you're, you're this type of officer. You're, you're in this field. You don't need to worry about that. Talk to us about why getting those skills, why going out and getting those experiences, why being a part of make you the ultimate teammate uh, for, for later on in life. Just had this conversation with my son. I don't know if I'll ever get him to listen to this podcast, but but we just <laughs> had this a very similar conversation because he uh, generally pretty reserved and doesn't bring a lot of things to, to me. You'll usually get his advice from somebody else when it comes to the army. I just usually I'm offering that unsolicited. But this was one thing that he brought brought up to me because this was exactly the one of the anecdotes I was thinking of when I was talking about getting, you know, barracks lawyers and cadet, you know, peer influence and things like that, that there's this, you know, this idea of like, you don't, you know, you don't need to go to a ranger school in, in certain career fields. What's, you know, what's the big deal? It's just about, about what, what does this, this, this little tab mean? And I, you know, I explained to him, I said, you're right. It doesn't, it doesn't come down to just that. But if you have done that, it, it's, it conveys this message that you were willing to make the decision to go do something hard and do something challenging. And that is a good screener. Not everybody that's ever graduated from ranger school uh, is is necessarily a top performer, but a lot of top performers come out of the willingness to do hard things, to be challenged. And I like to be challenged. And I like to be surrounded by people who like to be challenged. And especially people who didn't need to do that challenge, that went out of their way to do it, to be a little bit better, to be pushed in an area that isn't necessarily complete. When I said mark, you know, when I was talking about markers of distinction of of excelling in your in your career field, that means indirectly too. I mean, of course, everybody that's an emergency physician wants to be board certified. That's the marker of distinction there. They don't all need to go to ranger school, but the the couple that I do know that have been are those types that want that mm-hmm. want to challenge mm-hmm. and push it further. So it, there's an element of instant credibility that comes with that. You can have a fine career without it, but I would say there is a that is a one way to make a quick uh, assessment of your willingness to endure the uncomfortable and the challenging without speaking a word. The, the areas that those come is I see with the doctors, the, the, the doctors, the physicians that choose to be part of special organizations, because now you're having to execute surgery instead of it being in the hospital, you're executing it on the battlefield or you're executing it on somebody else in another country, right? With, right. Without any of the, the, the good equipment, with the right equipment uh, and, and make tough decisions at, in a snap moment, right? Those are some of the people, the chaplains in my life. Uh, that have talked about the, the chaplains that have gone to an air assault school, that have gone to an airborne school, that went out and did the same things that the people in their organizations are being asked to do. Right, exactly. Right? I mean, that was the motivation at the time. I went as a uh, as a young major when I was in 3rd Special Forces Group. I remember I had a conversation with my battalion commander. We had like a one-year dwell, and I mentioned it to him, and he was like shocked that I would even consider, like, you know, that I'd 
would suggest it, but he was supportive because there's like, sure, why not? Because it gave me credit. One, I went through with a bunch of people from my battalion who were also going. So that was, a, that was credibility, but there was also the, the credibility of, of being, of being like, I mean, that's the whole concept of being a flight surgeon, of being air crew is that you, it helps you identify with the patient population you're taking care of. So having the same run, jump and stab badges on your uniform gives you a lot of credibility with, with the audience that you're trying to have credibility with. Um, never mind that it also gives you invaluable skill set and thinking about risk management and planning and op orders and things like that that still stick with me today. There are, you know, the soft operators that become astronauts, pretty, pretty few and far between. It's not a population that has been tapped into a lot by NASA and the astronaut corps, but there are a couple of us, if I, if I can count myself among them. Um, there's a couple guys that are ranger tabbed and there's a, there's been three SEAL, uh, Navy SEALs that have become astronauts. And we instantly have this credibility uh, with each other, this rapport. You know, Chris Cassidy, who you met and mentioned, you had to listen to that uh, podcast he and I had done with the Mission Critical Teams Initiative. You know, we've, we've connected over that, even though we haven't even done the same schools. But the idea that we That's both right. have right. done hard things and connected that way, that we still, we understand the idea that that uh, humans are more important than hardware and, yep. and that uh, soft forces can't be mass produced. These, those general soft truths, those are, there's a, there's this understanding even among astronauts that I know another soft guy, um, he knows how to endure a little bit of suck. And there's parts of being an astronaut that are, that's, that suck and uncomfortable. It's like living in the field. In fact, that's what we use as a, one of our best analogs for living and working in space for a long period of time is like, going and doing like a Knowles and, uh, uh, um, expedition, um, in a remote place, like it's going to ranger school. That's, That's right. what it's like because your, your, your sleep isn't quite right. Your food isn't quite right. Your, um, hygiene's not quite right. You're always a little bit, yeah, you know, yeah. you're just always never like perfect. Uh, never, you're never like in your best state. And so that's the best way to assess a candidate. Well, anybody that's come out of special operations done a little bit of that. And I think that's a great screen for selecting an astronaut too. Yeah. And it's given me a connection with, you know, Johnny Kim and, and, and Chris Cassidy and um, other guys, or other, you know, I'm not the, the first Ranger in space, Mark Vandehei, um, also a current astronaut, a Ranger school graduate. And so we've been able to connect over those things because we know how to suck. And that, uh, the other people that we pull into the astronaut corps, that's not necessarily true. To take this, to take this towards, you know, folks that ranger school is not the, the, the thing staring them right in the face, right? Some of our younger folks, some of our junior officers, whether whoever they may be, uh, civilians, you're not staring ranger school in the face. What are you staring in the face right now, though, is some small task, some small victory, right? People need... People need a small victory when they're first starting, whether it's a new job, a new career, a new assignment. They need some small victories, right? And they need their leaders to help them create those small victories. Those small victories from our, for our junior officers and our young soldiers, it's simple things like air assault school. It's airborne school. Although we look at those and say that's simple, that was a big deal when I was 18 years old and I went through airborne school. Yeah. Right. I was proud of myself when I finished those five jumps, even though they were all night jumps. I had my eyes closed on all five of them. Right. When you exit. But like you when when Brady finished air assault school, he was proud of himself. He had a victory instead of a, instead of a failure right up front. And so that's the kind of things that are going to keep people around is the small little victories, any whatever it might be to get them, get them something to educate themselves, to feel proud about 
themselves to get a small victory, send them to BLC, send them to the promotion board, send them to the soldier of the month board, put an officer in charge of something, have them run something. You know, we, we do these. These are things that leaders do. Right. Right. Is they create these things. And so when I was a, when I was a second lieutenant and I was going through infantry officer basic course, right? Uh, they had a legend back then. His name was Ralph Puckett, right? And so he was the honorary ranger commander at Fort Benning. And he stood on the stage. And the thing I remembered him was he was talking to all the, the junior lieutenants in, in there getting ready. And he said, there's only one thing you need to be thinking about right now. Cause they were asking a bunch of questions, you know, how do I going to relate to my platoon sergeant? How am I going to figure these things? How do I, you know, prepare for my, my people for combat? All these, he said, he stopped everybody and he goes, no more questions. He goes, this is what you need to be thinking about. You need to be thinking about how you're going to get yourself through ranger school. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. How are you going to get through ranger school? Because when you show up to your organization, that's the first thing they're going to ask you. Or that's the first thing. They're not even going to ask you. You're an infantry officer. And they're going to look at you and they're going to say, did you do what, what it took? Right. That's what Ralph Puckett told us. The only thing you need to be thinking about right now is Ranger School. But that was what was right in our face. Right. So what he taught me was, is what's that thing that's right in your face right now? That's all you need. That's what you need to be thinking about is how are you going to get through this thing? Because what he told me, and here we are, two Rangers talking about Ranger School, right? Is he said for the rest of (laughs) he said for the rest of your life, if you're in the room with a with another Ranger, within a few minutes. Before that conversation's over, you will have some point talked about Ranger School. Yeah. No. And here we are. We just proved that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. There was a there was a saying that we had on the space station. Not, nothing's more important than what you're doing right now. And I, we even there wasn't even a law, an acronym, but I don't remember all the letters of it. The, of not not the, what you're doing. The point is that that you should focus on the task that that you don't don't get distracted. Focus on what you've got to do because it's actually. In the context of space, it's dangerous to be distracted from finishing the procedure that you're working on right now. And in the context of, of a, a young officer, platoon leader, th- thinking about these serial tasks, I, I, would, I would, though, offer that, that there will be failures along the way and that there's only these, these things that, that are just like standards measures of su- success early on. Graduating from, from uh, Bullock and graduate, you know, and, and you know, in good standing, and then graduating from 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 many, going to Ranger School, going to Airborne School, um, your first OER, your first ACFT, all all these these little little measures like that, and there are going to be setbacks along the way, and it's easy in those early years to take a setback and think that somehow that extrapolates to what the rest of your career is going to look like. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I remember the first big exam that I had in medical school where, you know, you're all, everybody did well in college to get to medical school. And we took our first, I don't remember what it was, anatomy or something like that. And, and it was hard. And I, and I got a, a solid to low C on it. And I remember a lot of people got punched in the face on that, in that exam and we're making wild extrapolations about like, Oh, I'm going to be, I'm never going to get the specialty that I want, or I'm going to be a terrible doctor or whatever. It's based on this one early on, because your N is at that point one. So you think that yeah. that somehow is predictive of. So that, yeah, I think the, the case in point would be the young officer, lieutenant, who maybe 
recycles ranger school or recycles twice and gets dropped or, or, uh, has a bad ACFT day or, yeah. you know, not a great, I don't even know are we block checking lieutenants right now. Uh, you know, have, you know, they're first OER or whatever it is, whatever those, those whatever it might be. Like, you yeah. can recover from that. This is like the, the end of the world. Your, your N, your, your sample size is super small at that point. Yep. And just, it's about how you recover from that. How do you bounce back, rebound from that? Does that put you in a graveyard spiral for the, that can, probably does put some people on a tailspin and they're just like, I'm just not cut out for this. I don't want to do this. And then that becomes, that begets this, begets this. And yeah. before you know it, you're in a spiral and, and you become the disgruntled young officer and then you find yourself out in a couple yeah. of years or how do you use that as a, as a huge opportunity right. to make a quick correction right. a simple cor correction where they say hey you could have done a little bit better in this area uh maybe they're not as gentle as i just was when they say that you know but you're like hey this is a huge opportunity for make uh, to make the smallest little correction and off i'm going in, in another direction uh where where we get it um, when you talked about, you know, whatever task you're being asked to do right now, do it to the absolute best. When I was, uh, when I was a captain, I had a special opportunity with a friend of mine, um, named Mike Lorario and Mike asked me to go on a pheasant hunting trip. And he's like, Hey, come out there with a couple guys, me and my friends, we're going to go shoot some pheasant. It's going to be awesome. And, uh, and I said, sure. So I showed up in my camo and I jump in the car with these, these three, uh, th three people you know, and they, they take me out there. Well, one of them was Mike Longo and I didn't know Mike at the time, but Mike was another friend of Mike Lorario, Mike Longo, right? Mike had been a major. He got an MBA uh, from the army, sp spent a few more years in the army. Then he went out to the rest of the world. He ended up becoming the CFO for, for AutoZone, uh, became a guy. Now he runs like 150 and I'm probably butchering it, Mike, but like 150 city gear stores throughout uh, across the United States. And I said to him, I said, Mike, after I, after the hunt, I found out some of these things, right? So I said, Mike, you know, I, I want to do something like what you're doing someday. You know, maybe I don't have an MBA or maybe I don't run a bunch of city gears and stuff like that. But if I want to do something like what you're doing, what should I be doing now so that I could do something like that someday? And he turned around in the front seat of the car and he looked me right in the eye and he just said, be the absolute best at whatever the army is asking you to do right now. That's yeah. it. He's like, there is that, that's the step. It isn't like there's no secret sauce to becoming one, to getting to that spot, but it's being the absolute best and doing your absolute best at whatever you're being asked to do right now. And people around you on your left and right, people around you are going to see what you're doing. They're going to recognize that talent and they're going to ask you to come and be a part of their team somewhere else at, at some point. Yeah, absolutely. We talked a lot about like successful people and what, what successful people, the, the things that they all have in common, right? There, you, know, you, you said not everybody that goes to ranger school is successful. Not everybody that becomes a doctor ends up having, is, is fulfilled and, uh, and has this amazing life. But people that do have an amazing life, they all have those things that, that they, that are in common. They have the same few things that they, they've all done. They've, they've put themselves in hard spots. They've done hard things. They've surrounded themselves with phenomenal people. Uh, they got a bunch of discipline. What are the things that you, you kind of, you harp on and you say, these are my things. You, these are the things that I got to do. I, I keep doing to keep moving forward. Well, we talked about the th kind of three, th three big ones that I use just for general career advice and career planning in terms of doing the thing you love and being the best that you can be at those things. 
finding those markers of, of, of excellence in, in your career field or whatever that is. And then, and then being a good human being, good person, good, good dude in army mm-hmm. parlance. What is being a good person, good teammate? What does that look like? Mm-hmm. What are some of the elements of those things? And you and I probably could go a little back and forth on this, but one of the things that I have um, really capitalized on studied recently is the, is the idea of, vulnerability of being mm. being the, the type of leader that isn't afraid to talk about shortcomings that's kind of a, a, a more yeah I, you know I don't think that had has classically been part of recognized in the, in military circles especially as something that's seen as valuable or important but I think that that's I think that it is yeah, especially the more senior you become and the more the variety of people that you interact like you know if you grow up and and I didn't grow up in an infantry brigade combat team and had to have that experience of where I'm commanding right now military is a tiny little percentage and then the department of army civilians is a slightly larger percentage and then the rest are contractors and some of those are american some of those are third country national some of them are marshallese from their locally that's a variety of different people to, to interact with. And so leadership 101, as it uh, comes out of the FM and, and, and the Army, is not necessarily the best model. And yeah. so the it idea- seems like It seems like the folks that start to learn about leading with vulnerability, and there's a good podcast out there, uh, Yuma Burnett's running one called Lead with Vulnerability. Um, and Mike Burke's running a podcast called... Uh, uh, legends of the 75th but both of them now are retired right and both of them have started to you know understand as we get older we start to understand the importance of leading with vulnerability and being able to be honest with folks but when we're young we don't see that right, right. We, yeah. we don't see it until later on call it being more mature calling it being more more experienced but but our younger generation our younger folks they they want to keep that to themselves they want to keep it inside uh, they feel like that's being weak. They feel like that's being um, telling your folks that you don't know the answer. Uh, that that's that that's what a leader shouldn't do. A leader shouldn't a leader should know the answer. The leader should know how to do it. Right. But that's not the case. Right. So what are you know? I mean, what do you think are some of those some of the elements of vulnerability? I mean, some knowing what you're good at and what you're not good at, mm-hmm. and what are you doing about those things that you're not good at, and. Mm-hmm. Are, how are you able to are you able to talk about your mistakes and talk about what you learned from those things? So a high degree of emotional intelligence and and self reflection and just just knowing and constantly yeah. assessing those things and attacking those things that that you're not good at and what are you doing to improve? Yeah, and I think this is the that's the beautiful thing about either being put in charge or being put in a situation where you don't know much about it, where now you can come in vulnerable and say, I don't know the first thing about what we're what we're being asked to do. Um, you're going to be a part of a team that you don't know much about. Ask somebody, show me everything. And I want to meet everyone and I want to see everything. I want to meet them on their terms. And I want them to tell me, tell me about what, what you're at being asked to do. What are you asked to do on a daily basis? How do you do, how do you do things daily around here? What, do, what are your requirements? How do you do it? How do you solve it? How would I know? Unless, unless I, unless I ask, be vulnerable, tell them you don't know the answer, Right. Because I think that people would come back to you and say, you're the first person that's asked me that. Yeah, you know? I'll give you a practical example that her, it kind of, kind of a, a simple example, but it happened just in the last couple of months. A couple of weeks after I took command, I got a, uh, we have a, a public, a weekly publication that comes out 
and it has a, they put a, you know, there's a photo on the cover of it. It's called the hourglass. And I provided a, a photo that a, a friend of mine on the International Space Station had taken of the Pacific and um, the picture of, of atolls, uh, islands in, mm-hmm. the, in the Pacific um, that he had, it said it was a picture of the Marshall Islands and, you know, congratulations on changing command. And I, I gave it to our PAO to put it on the cover of the, of the, the magazine. And I was so proud of it because I'm like, it's part of my, my shtick. You know, so, you know, I'm an astronaut and look at this. I got, I, a friend of mine sent me this current picture of the Marshall Islands and the Pacific is a beautiful picture. You can see the, the, the cupola, the, the, the window of the ISS looking down the curvature of the earth. And there's these beautiful little Pacific islands there. Well, somebody, once that got published, savvy enough to do a little bit of the geography work, and it turns out it wasn't the Mar- it was some Pacific Islands, but it wasn't the Marshall Islands, and so I had I, I was of course immediately embarrassed, and then in one of my first town hall meetings, I had to apologize to the community that I had put on the cover. Then uh, this, you know, this not only is seen by just the the garrison, but also you know has an international audience there in the Marshall Islands. I can say there's a great picture that we put on the cover of the hourglass. Um, unfortunately my mistake, it wasn't the Marshall Islands. So being able to, to address head on when you've made a, made an error and not make light of it, but just to say, oh, I, sorry about that. Well, we can appreciate that for what it was, but it wasn't what I originally thought it was. And forgive me. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> so what do we do now? Like what, what, what is kind of this, Going forward, you know, it's, it's no secret that the Army is is struggled over the last couple of years with its recruiting. And, and we, we say retention. I say we say retention because we're, we're still trying to figure that out, right? A lot of folks are staying. Some folks are deciding to, to separate. But, it, but is, it, is it that much different? Maybe it isn't that much different, right? I, I mean, I, I, came, I grew up in the Army in the 90s. Right from nine, I came in in ninety four, and I feel like we're in a position right now. We're a lot like the nineties. We were in between wars. Organizations were trying to figure out where they fit in. Right, the eighty second was trying to figure out where it fit in. The Ranger Regiment of the ninety was, was trying to figure out where we fit in to the special operations community. We were trying to figure these things out. Right in the world, there was training exercises going on. There was small little things pick, perking up every once in a while. Right, Mogadishu happened, but only a couple of units did went went to Somalia, right? Um, and so, moving forward, when we think about rec- rec- recruiting, when we think about retention, right? What could the leaders, those of us that are in the army, I'm asking for what can people like Matt, Andrew, and battalion commanders, and maybe some young folks, you know, some majors, some sergeant majors, first sergeants, like what what could we be doing to help? Yeah, when we uh, started off the conversation, we talked about how we are at this point. We are the army. When people are like, "Well, the army, the army screwed me," or the army, um, the army wants me to, frequently we are we are the army when we're in the room with people who say that. Who would say that? You know, we we represent the middle management now. We're the interface between all the way down to E one and all the senior leaders in the at the Pentagon. We're the in between. So we represent the army. So if somebody decides that the army screwed them, then I, I, I take that personally as I, I should hear, I should hear, we should hear that, um, that that person feels like they were screwed by, by me. So 
I, you know, as I've gone through my first round of counseling with the field grade officers in my staff, you know, there, um, there are a couple that I've had some hard conversations with by the traditional sense of the word, the idea of the flexible career paths and finding, like we have a person who's made of more good moral fiber that we want to keep in the army that maybe hasn't, um, checked all the right blocks in the right order from the, in the, in the conventional sense of the word, but still has value to the army. How do we, replace them somewhere where they could continue to, if their desires continued service. And all these, and this anecdotes I'm thinking of right now that I've just gone through the round mm-hmm. of, in every case it is like, I want to continue to serve, um, but, you know, my branch manager is telling me, you know, the Army is telling me, I'm done. Yeah. Well, I'm it's like, well, I challenge them. Or they're that. telling you these this. are your only options. Here's what, they're, here's what they're throwing out there. Right. Right. And it's our job as leaders to find a, the right fit for for folks. What, what skills do we need? What type of person do we need? What values do we need in this, in this type of, in these responsibilities, right? What do we need in this duty position? Who's the right person? Who's the right family? Who's, who's the right fit for this family, for this soldier, for this officer? Who, what's the right fit for them? And then go find that place. Right. Go find those responsibilities. These are the things that they're good at. Go find those things towards the, that's the retention side. Yes. Towards a recruiting side, right? We know because we're starting to hear it from folks, right? We know wh- why we joined. We know why folks are joining nowadays. And in most of the cases, the f- it's the same reasons. We wanted to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. People wanted to do something challenging. They wanted to test themselves. They wanted to learn some skills. They wanted to prepare themselves, get some discipline. They wanted to prepare themselves for life, right? I joined the Army for the college fund. I joined the Army to get a little bit of discipline. I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. That's why I joined the Army, right? But the reason I stayed was was different than the reason that I joined. And so rather than just try to get, let's just go get thousands and thousands of people and then we'll turn them into soldiers. We know what we want soldiers to look like, especially those of us that are out there leading right now, right? And I think to the person we would say, I'd rather have six of the right people than 10 of maybe not the right people. Right. Well, we definitely want to put ourselves in a position where we depart from the all-voluntary army because that's, that yeah that's going to change the product that we have right now we want to find the people that this is the type of life that they want to be a part of and the way we we attract them is we make this the the type of organizations that people want to be a part of right so you can see it on a daily basis by the way i live my life by the way we run our organizations by the way we run our day-to-day operation that people look at that and they say i want to be a part of that team i want to be on a team that 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 does that way. Because what this does is it protects us from, hey, this isn't what I signed up for. Because what you gave me this poster, what you advertised I would be doing on a daily basis, that's not what I'm doing. And that's often what we see from folks, right? They said, I joined the army to do these things. This is what I thought I would be doing. And that's not what I'm doing. Yeah. Right. So it's, it's, it's not matching. The audio is not matching the video, right? They were recruited to do a certain thing. And now on a day-to-day basis, they're not, they're not doing that. And it's not just the Army. We see that out in the rest of the world too, right? People are being recruited to do jobs, and then that's what they thought they were going to be doing was out talking to clients, meeting people. But instead, they're in a cubicle responding to emails. And as I, at no point was that in the recruiting pitch. But I spend 90% of my time writing emails and responding to emails. That's not why I signed up. 
It's not what I signed up for, right? And so when those two don't match, people get disgruntled and people are not, are not having a good time. They're not fulfilled. They're not enjoying it. And how do we make those two come closer together yeah. from what I signed up for, for what I, what I was told I was going to be doing, for what I thought I was going to be doing? And if that's the case, if those things aren't matching, then we just maybe we need to just change the way we're being honest with people, right? Is, is what we're saying. What are we going to be doing on a daily basis? If that has to be a secret, I'm not sure we're doing the right things, right? Well, don't tell them what we're going to be doing on a day-to-day basis. Right, you know? right. And, and, and that speaks to the retention side. And you mentioned, though, the recruiting side, which is where the, we think we're really feeling the pain. I heard this interesting statistic, and I'm not going to get the number right, but at my Boar College graduation uh, two years ago, the uh, graduation speaker mentioned what the – the statistic was on the number of soldiers entering the service that had direct ties to military service in their in their family history. Basically, you know, mom, dad, probably aunts, uncle. I don't know what to, to how far out and they were extending this out, but it was. I remember it was it was a high number. It was like between sixty and seventy percent, like two thirds swag mm-hmm. that had ties to the military service to military service before they themselves entered. So. What is that? That conveys very clearly that we're doing a really good job of handing this down through familial generations. Mm-hmm. And the Army's capitalizing on that. It probably doesn't have to invest a whole lot into that because that works. Either you, you grew up in a family and you, you know, they're like, this is what I want or it's definitely what I don't want. We, we recruit heavily from that population, from within, from the family. It, it's inherited. It's a, it's part of a, you know, it's a strata of our society that, that will continue to serve and pass this down family to family. So where we have the most opportunity for growth is outside of that. And who are the best recruiters for that? Well, those are the people whose families have been serving for generations like ours, you know, that have passed this down over multiple generations is I'm not, maybe that needs to be something, an evaluation criteria. Like who have you recruited into the the military lately that has had no ties to it previously? You know, mm-hmm. and I can think of a a couple that I have, uh, you know, that I have attempt. I've we've I've uh, crossed that bridge with, and it's very exciting to help a family break down those barriers or the misconceptions or preconceptions or the lack of knowledge or not knowing where to start with military service and where to go and how to navigate that and help them figure that out to bring a new family lineage into the fold. Yeah. That's what we should, we should be, we should be, we're the best recruiters and what's our, our metric to incentivize all of us to go out and be the best recruiters outside of the service to pull in a new family line who has never, yes. never you know, maybe, or is maybe, you know, you only have to go back a generation to where everybody served, but now we're in, you know, the second where we're like two or three generations in where there's been no military service and they don't even know where to begin or they have mis- misconcep- preconceived notions or misconceptions about what military service is. How do we break that down and how do we get our people, our peers to make sure that they're, yeah. they're doing that? And uh, on the flip side, it's we all know that bad news spreads a lot faster than good news. Right. So the good news story that's like, Hey, look at, look at how much the army has done for, for, for my family and my life. Right. We also know how fast bad news travels. Look at this bad example. Right. Look how the army did me wrong. Look at how I did four years in the army. I did six years in the army. Two of them were deployed. Uh, now I have post traumatic stress and, um, 
my, my back's hurt, my knees aren't right, and off I go, and in the Army I separate. Or we have a soldier who uh, makes a mistake, does something wrong. They did, they did something. They did something that they shouldn't have done, right? And we separate them. We separate them from the Army um, under other than honorable terms, and, they, and now their experience, their three to four years in the military, terrible experience. Right, they're going to go out there, and that's the advocate that's going up and down the street. That's the advocate at a university when someone says, "Hey, go ask Uncle 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 Steve. Go ask Uncle Uncle Matt. He was in the, he was in the army. He'll tell you what it's all about. He's, he's going to tell you how bad it was, right? And we know that that negative that's going to scare people away. That 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 is scaring people away. First time we met, you were up on stage at SoCom, and I was standing in the back. Yeah, right. worthy of mention that. Yeah. yeah, we yeah we got connected through the Fenton network, basically. That's right. Um, yeah, and we instantly. I was like, if I get an opportunity to meet to, to talk to those guys a little bit more, those are the kind of people that I want to be around. Right. Um, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to connect people, right? And I'm trying to bring people together because yeah, if you're a nothing connector. else, that's a that's a category. That's there are certain people in the world that just have a knack for connecting people. And I, I think we must have recognized that on each other early on because it was like mm-hmm. clicked right away. And I, yeah, and Malcolm I see Gladwell like, is the connectors. Yeah, right? yeah, connectors versus mavens. Yeah, and and I don't know all the answers, but I do know if 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 we put this person in touch with this person, then they'll get they'll exactly. Get That's what I have this this constant going rolodex in my head. I'm like, I remember I talked to somebody that is. Uh, I think mm-hmm. you need to talk to. This. I love making those connections, and sometimes it fizzles out. And that's and sometimes the it's. That's the network. Yeah. That's what makes a good team. And that's what makes being yeah. sometimes what you, what do you bring to the team? Sometimes what you bring to the team is your Rolodex. You, what you bring to the team is, is you know, a lot of people that have a lot of different skills that know, that have a lot of different experiences that you say, I can tap into this person. I can tap into that person. And then that team, that's what, that's what makes a good team is they've got a little bit of everything. They got a kicker. They got somebody that can tackle. Right. They got somebody that can throw the ball and somebody that can catch it. Right. right. That's why you mentioned the mission critical teams, uh, initiative MCTI. I, you know, I've been on that podcast twice. Um, and that's pre- what really resonated with me with that. And Preston Klein was like, I was like, yes, this connects all these people that they're not even all soft military, very, you know, just this is one segment of it. It connects all these people from all over the place, all different industries, brings them all together and they're all like-minded some some of them are in the movie industry some of them are in professional sports some of them are in medicine some of them are in federal law enforcement but mm-hmm. they all have this like-minded uh this yeah. this sense i love the way that, that the connections work there and so uh, and i hope this leads to that but i said at the end of the day it doesn't does it really i mean if you just view this as hey this is just this is nice for me to just document yeah. the work that you're doing the great work that you're doing talking to people and after my mission, Disney Plus made this documentary about the that series of spacewalks that I did, and I don't think it did very well. But I was glad that they did it because I was glad to have it for for posterity. Yeah, to to, to, to for for that. So you can't if you have that attitude, it doesn't yeah. it doesn't matter. And, but I think you will. Are you going to make important connections? Yeah, you you were talking about with the different people that you've interacted with, with the firefighters, the police department, with the mission critical teams, right? You now have all these different experiences and, and you're bringing it all together and, and, and you have relationships with lots of different people from a lot of different organizations, right? If we're going to win in the Pacific, and I shouldn't even use the term win because it's an infinite game. Like this isn't, right. this isn't a game where 
we can win and then chalk it up. Right. Fourth quarter's over. It if, isn't win. If it's we're going to compete. If we're going to compete. If we're going to compete if in this infinite game, which is the Pacific, which is where we're serving, right? It's going to take more than just the military. It's going to take more than just the army. It's going to take relationships. It's going to take... It's going to take the government. It's going to take people. It's going to take civilians. It's going to take the people that we interact with on a daily basis, not just here, but in all these other countries, right? What are your thoughts on what do we need to be doing? What, what, do you, what are you doing right now that's going to set ourselves up for that in the future? Yeah. Well, here in the Pacific, uh, since I didn't really know other than I used to 16 times a day orbit over the Pacific. I hadn't put a lot of thought into the Pacific strategy and, and, and how, um, Kwajalein and I mean, Kwajalein is a very, very tiny, tiny Island, a small part of this, but, but that's what you, know, you talked about what gets me up and makes me excited every day. I mean, that invigoration of not just being a leader again, but being part of the talking about strategy in the Pacific and all over the world, because what I, tell everybody in both on Quaj and off of Quaj is that Kwajalein is important for the nation. It's has an important vital mission for the, for the nation, missile defense, testing, um, ICBM testing, space domain awareness. Those things are all true, but there's also this new opportunity to have an impact for the geographic combatant command, which, you know, we've always had assumed primacy, uh, and, uh, supremacy in the Pacific. Well, that's contested now. That's not necessarily true. And that now makes, should make us look at Kwajalein in a different light. It's key terrain in the middle Pacific nested there halfway between Hawaii and Australia and Guam and Japan. We're right there in the middle. So we're key terrain that matters in a way that it hasn't in previous decades. It's not just a place that we shoot ICBMs at now. That's important and it will always be important. But it also has importance here in the Pacific. So there, there's that. And then the other thing I tell, I say when I'm at home on the island is that this is our home too. And so mm-hmm. making, you know, helping them, everybody to understand, because the people that live on Quaj, the, the, you know, a lot of them have lived there for years and it's important to them. And so I, Quaj is important to the nation. It's also our home. And how do we, we have to reconcile those things. And my job is to, to project that outwards or acknowledge on the island, this is our home and that this matters to us and we want to invest in it. But externally, I'm doubling and tripling down on the fact that Quaj has always been important to the nation, but it's more important than ever now. And integrating that into the theater is new thought process. It hasn't been thought of that way. And that's why our relationship and our relationship with some of the, with, um, U.S. Army Pacific, um, Indo-PACOM and, and how, and starting to think about Kwajalein in new ways, that has really excited me. And in your future role as, as the leader that will own all of JPMRC and that capability mm-hmm. too, and the synergy that will exist between us there and using Kwajalein in that role, because there are some important, demonstrations and training that we can accomplish using that little piece of Pacific terrain that will contribute to the deterrence posture and to readiness in the Pacific. And I love, yeah. I love it. And this is all thought, thought processes that have been very dormant for me in the last decade, but waking that up and some of the conversations yeah. you and I have had, have re- that excites me. Yeah. 
and and moving forward, I, I just recently got to be a part at the Asia Pacific Center of two courses that they run. The first one that we ran was the um, the comprehensive security cooperation, uh, and we bring in over a hundred different uh, folks from from different countries throughout the Pacific. We bring them all in. We talk about all things security, uh, security from an economic standpoint, security from security yep. from a climate perspective, security health wise. Right. Yep. There's a lot of different things that these countries need help with. Right. There's a lot of things that they're trying to to accomplish. I got to hear that firsthand from from all those individuals. The The biggest thing that stood out to me is that everybody in the Pacific is trying to help each other. They're tr- they're working hard to help each other uh, throughout the Pacific with what we can do to move forward. Um, the second one was the. Uh, Indo-Pacific Orientation Course, the IPOC, and that's a course where you bring in mostly um, American uh, soldiers, American GS civilians that come in that are getting ready to go on some type of assignment into the Pacific, and so they 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 get this course, you know, where they learn for about five days. You mentioned climate resilience and demonstration. That is also, uh, I think an untapped potential there on Quadge because the Marshall Islands, low-lying atolls, you know, at best we're like seven or eight feet above sea level, sea level rise and inundation. And those, those ideas, those are very near and dear to the, to the Marshallese and being able to, um, to demonstrate some of those of technologies, energy resilience, uh, clean water resilience, and uh, shoreline protection, inundation, housing solutions, those types of things we could demonstrate there for the Pacific, for the DOD, for America, for the world, for Pacific partners, demonstrate some things there by using DOD money to demonstrate things that are not necessarily for military purposes. It just so happens to be one of the front lines for where climate impacts our national security. Uh, no doubt. We've got some important things there. And if storms blow over it, like it happened in Tyndall Air Force Base and in the Gulf of Mexico, that impacts our national security. So we're invested in making it better and protecting it. Yeah. So it's relevant now and can be propagated elsewhere. Earlier, we were talking about um, what could we be doing going forward, right? Who are some of the other folks that we that we need whether it be in the Pacific or from a recruiting and retention standpoint, but who, in order for us as connectors to bring everybody together, who do we need to start talking to? Like, who do we need to start sharing what's going on over here, sharing what leaders are doing, recruiting command, ROTC command, yeah, well, some I, of those folks. I um, mentioned, I mean, this, this is, you know, you, you know, that you didn't seed this idea with me, but I, I recognize it immediately that, that people like you in this product that you're producing and others like-minded who you know a handful of, that making sure that we're getting these ideas, because this is how these ideas are exchanged. So how do we get this in the hands of others? How do we use the marketing and engagement brigade? How do we use the the larger U.S. Army Recruiting Command, Army War College, the um, Army University, um, all, all these, where the think tanks are in the Army, 
um, the intellectual exchange occurs and how do we, um, you continue to pull people in that exchange these ideas because you're a connector and this is how you're connecting people and you're connecting more connectors through a product like this. So how do we propagate that around? So social media, obviously, um, but getting it with the right commands to put command influence on on these types of things like why is this professional development and listening to these podcasts and doing this kind of reading why is that not something that's required Mm -hmm. that's how you get your field grade officers educated and making them going out and recruiting and going and learning how to retain and be better better at retention and better at recruiting and uh, better at uh, understanding pacific strategy even though you are you're in u.s army europe um, how do you do that? Well, you got to not force them, but encourage them, incentivize them yep. to learn about those things. So what podcasts have you listened to in the last uh, couple of weeks, this rating period? Have you listened to this podcast, this podcast, this podcast? Sure. Um, or, um, you know, while we do this ruck march, you're going to listen to this podcast. Yeah. What, what else are you going to do? Mm-hmm. You start stacking road. habits. You start stacking things on right. top. So, like so this time, article, oh, you got a twelve mile road march. You can listen to a lot of podcasts, and these are the podcasts you're going to listen to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you can listen to them on one point four speed. You can listen to them a little bit faster. You can plow through a couple of them. You can listen to articles nowadays that are that are written, but you can listen to them through audio. Some the the apps that are that can read through it. But I bet we can find a way to keep yeah. to. We'll do it. It doesn't you know, have to be in traffic. headphones. Yeah, uh, you know, somebody's got a speaker. We've seen them all the time where someone's walking with a speaker, and and you can hear it and, yeah. it and it's talking. The phrase I use is, "If the rewards are appropriate, the behaviors will follow." Yeah, there's some art and there's some science to how we communicate these things to to our soldiers, to our leaders. Right. A right. good example of of where the where the reward is going to drive the behavior as as you and I are both products of the command assessment program. Well, we incorporated writing into the command assessment program for a reason Mm -hmm. because writing was lagging and we need to step up our game and the ability to write at the executive level. Well, now it's part of the assessment. So guess what? It's going to get a lot more emphasis. Well, what if you did the same thing on professional development, reading and listening and, and also content producing? I mean, you see the chief staff of the army is put emphasis on professional writing mm-hmm. in academic journals. Well, there's a reason for that because that's how ideas are propagated. That's how and- ideas are shared. That's right. How do you get your ideas out there? It It's not just, is the idea in my head? It's not just, have I read all these things? But what are you doing with it? What are you doing with the experience? What are you doing with the education? What are you doing with those lessons? So, I, I you know, you look at all these books. It's not about your ability to quote these you know, I can quote what that book says and I can quote what that book says and I can put it into this paper. Sometimes what it's about is, are you able to see the situation and have the, the, the judgment and look at that situation and go, this is a situation where this type of person or this type of solution needs to come up with and, and, and you can start implementing it, you know, as, as you go forward, as you go forward. Hey, so, so tell me about some of the, some of the things you've got going on out there at Quadulin. Is there like a quad tab? Is there something that you guys that, <laughs> like that you are got going in? Yeah. Well, I mean, first I, I said, it's one of the, every time I get in front of the, the public or the workforce or my staff, I say, everybody remember that, that Quadge is important to the nation and this is our home and that we bring the way we, the keystone in between those things is relationships and on those relationships we build community and on this concept of community we want to be a healthy community of excellence and we have these shared values and i have these the 
community pact and the teammate pact that has the, these values. And rather than go into all those values, one of the things, though, that I needed to do when I got there to unify under this, this everybody under this concept was unify not just the garrison, but all the mission partners that are present there. Space Fence and the Reagan test site and the Army Corps of Engineers and um, the 500th MI detachment. And all uh, To unify everybody under this one umbrella, this idea that Team Quaj were, were this one team on this island out there in the Pacific doing this important thing for the nation. And so I div- we came up with this concept of the Team Quaj tab. And I had a thousand of these Velcro tabs that say Team Quaj on them. And it has a, a U.S. star and a... Mar- on a Republic of Marshall Islands star from their flag on it. And it's a, this is, this idea of a tab is a little bit army, but also there's also a little bit of NASA mm-hmm. symbology mm-hmm. in, in, in the tab itself. And there are 12 tasks that you have to do to reinforce some of those values. So the first thing is, is I want to make sure that everybody's onboarded correctly. So like one of the first tasks you got to do is you have to go to the newcomers brief and you have to get the team quad in, in brief from me, um, you have to go visit our neighboring island of Ebai, where the majority of our workforce, our local national workforce lives, so that you understand what life is like for them in the Marshall Islands outside of the garrison. Um, you have to tell other people about the team, team quad tab. That's a requirement. You've got to, to propagate that a little bit. Um, you have to pass an oral examination with me. You know, they have to get in in front of me at some point and, and do this, what I call a board of review. That's something I stole from scouts as a scoutmaster, this board of review. Before you get your merit badge, you got to have this one final check. And then there's also this heritage walk around the island. It's a six-mile walk around the battlefield, either on Kwajalein or our northern cantonment area, Roy Namur. And you have to walk the whole island and visit all the historical sites along the way so you understand the historical significance of the battle for Kwajalein and Operation Flintlock. So it's all these these little check marks you got to miss. You're earning a tab. You're earning a, a merit badge that unifies us under these shared values of Team Quaj. And it has been wildly successful. And then everybody is eligible for it. You don't have to be just a worker. You can be a family member, high school kids. You've, everybody has to... PT events are also a requirement too. So we do kind of an all comers PT type type of event too. So everybody yeah, has these some sheets. Some of those on the social media, yeah, on the posts yeah. with the, the, the PT events. Yeah. So you and everybody's you know, you got to go get your worksheet and work through those twelve things. And you know we've we're approaching a um, we're getting near a hundred tabs awarded. I mean the people are taking it seriously. Then we have it. a big tabbing ceremony at a commander's call at the Ocean View, our our local watering hole on a, you know, and you take a little oath of a little agreement to to live by the values of Team Quaj. You know, it's a it's a whole thing and it's people love it. They love they wear it on a hat or I even authorize it to you know for for yeah. uh, service members to wear it on their uniforms on on, on our, our on our island on the on the last day of the yeah, work week. It's like week. the jungle tab out yeah. here. It, yeah, it's exactly. something special to, to our area. Yeah. People like to be a part of something special, but people want to be a part of something that's unique, that makes them feel like they're valued, that makes them feel, you know, like they're part of a, of a special team. Yeah. And, and that's what I want team quad to be one, this one team out there in the Pacific doing something important for America. It's important. And we're yeah. trying to propagate that. And Team Quaj is a little way that we can take pride. It's and, just a and small that's way, but it goes a huge way. And these are how you're. This is how you're taking things that you learned growing up. Growing up at West Point, you learned growing up in special mission units. 
you learned growing up in the SF. Now, it didn't just you didn't find this out as when you became an astronaut. You these were things that slowly started to become habits, things that you learned throughout your time. So now you as the commander, you're like, we've got to find a place where we can all gather. We did this in the rattlesnakes, right? right. We had we called it the saloon. We had to come up with a name for it. What's it going to be called? But there's got yeah. there's a place where people gather yep. to 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 swap stories. To, and, and people used to say, sometimes they say, you know, hey, sir, you know more work gets done at the saloon after 1600 than happened all day long. And, I w- and I'm not surprised because if there's one thing that all soft units have, everybody's got a team room, right? Yep. Yep. And when you say it, that's talk that comes up in the team room, doesn't happen in the boardroom, it happens in the team room. Yep. We all know what that means, right? There's a place where people can gather and feel safe. And feel like they're going to be surrounded by uh, other people with similar values that care about the same things. So as soon as you see that quadge tab on someone's shoulder, you know that I know what they went through. Yeah. I know the things that they did in order to earn that. And and we now have we're now family. So my question to you, Matt, is when you're going to come down to quadge and earn your tab? Yeah, no doubt, no <laughs> doubt. As soon as I can get on that road, me and Christy are going to come do it together. All right, me Sounds and Christy good. will come down there and do it together. You'll be welcome. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Matt, I'll end roughly where we started, which is that I'm a soldier, I'm a physician and an astronaut. And I I did this interview, I think it was task and purpose or something before I launched to space. And, And when they gave me the last word, I said, this was before I went to space. I said, at the end of the day, I know that the, the greatest honor of my life was serving soldiers, being able to take care of soldiers in combat, specifically in the context of special operations, but I mean that in a, in a broader sense uh, of soldiers in combat. That was the greatest honor of my life. And I said, before I flew in space, and I know that flying in space isn't going to change that. And I now that I've gone full circle, I know that is that still remains true. The greatest honor of my life has been serving as a soldier. I was a soldier first, soldier, physician, then astronaut. And by going back out to Kwajalein to be a commander there. I'm returning in my roots, and that's where I want to be. That's where my heart is, serving in the Army. Thanks for having me. You're the best. I appreciate your friendship, and I appreciate what you're doing for the Army and for America. Here's a sneak peek into our next episode with Captain Bailey Bolin Kukannon. One in particular, like, it's hard to tell your battalion commander, though the snakes were awesome, I wanted to leave the battalion because I wanted to deploy, right? Like, to me, that was, when you deploy, you send, like, your best forward. I know that's not always how it works, but, like, because there's a deployment, you know, patch charts, what have you, but it was great being in Hawaii, and I loved that. But it was difficult for me to go to you and be like, I was new to you, I was new to the Army. I'm, in my mind, if I'm you, I'm like, what does this young lieutenant know? And in my mind, I'm like, he should know what I need to do to get there. If I'm him, I want to keep the best on my team. And you didn't do that. And not saying that I was the best, but if I saw myself the best and I'm working the hardest, then like, if I was in your shoes, I would have, I I tried to see it from your perspective and I would have been like, who do you think you are, one? Like, why do you think you're ready to deploy? Why do you think you're ready to be with the best of the best? Why don't you think the mission here is relevant? Why don't you want to be on my team? And you were like, okay, let's do it. If that's what you want to do, let's get you there. And that was like, just meant everything to me. Thanks for listening today. I hope we spark some thoughts about the people that have inspired you to be who you are today. I hope you share some of your thoughts and better yet demonstrate them for the people in your life. Our pursuit is to get a little bit better every day. Progress equals small victories stacked on top of each other, building like compound interest. 
Keep stacking these positive habits. Habits like getting up early, working your butt off, learning something new, being positive, and surrounding yourself with phenomenal people. Please share your comments at the links in the show notes and DM us at Teach Me to Fish podcast on Instagram or Facebook. Looking forward to our next conversation. Got it, you